Welcome back to Yang Daily. I'll be your host, Alex Cheney, bringing you all the Yang news you need to live your life right. If you didn't see the tweet, sorry for the delay. Everyone in my extended family seems to want to have birthdays at the same time. Had one yesterday and another the day before, which was a pretty big time sink. Anyway, we've got some big news to cover on both democracy and UBI fronts. Let's get rolling. Quick shout out to our Tier 3 patrons, Shay Meehan and Nathan Stankowski, as well as all our other patrons. You keep us all informed and engaged. If any of you out there want to join these advocates of humanity first and independent journalism, head on over to patreon.com slash yangdaily. It would only take a couple of bucks a month from each listener to keep this podcast and community going and growing into the future. Now on to the news. We haven't talked to gerrymandering in a while. I'm sure you've missed it. Hate to disappoint, but it's not because gerrymandering stopped. Georgia's legislature just passed congressional districting maps based on the 2020 census that will unfairly ensure GOP control over that state for the next decade. Both the Senate and House maps are rated F for competition, the backbone of democracy. Despite Georgia becoming a highly competitive state in the presidential race, the state legislature remains solidly Republican due to 2010 maps that were gerrymandered almost as much as possible in favor of the GOP, leaving zero competitive districts where there could have been seven out of 14. That will now continue for another decade and in perpetuity until something forces change. So what can we do to force that change? Well, in Georgia, you can push to pass SR 969, a meme-worthy name if ever there were one, for independent redistricting. Federally, we can push for the Freedom to Vote Act, which would do the same for the whole country. And we can join up with the Represent Us and Fair Vote organizations for more action. Gerrymandering is anti-democracy straight up. It has to go. Voters must pick their politicians, not the other way around. So as far as I know, paid leave was and still is cut from the Build Back Better bill, but most Dems are trying to get it back in. Unclear whether they will be successful, but you have to hear what they are talking about because it's just so typically nuts. The plan being discussed covers leave for new parents or for personal or family illness. It has a multi-part work requirement. Specifically, to qualify for leave, you must have worked for at least six quarters of your life, worked for either half the quarters since your 21st birthday, or 20 quarters in total since your 21st birthday, have worked in the past year, and have earned at least $2,000 in the past two years. Now, I don't even know what the first one means. Worked for at least six quarters of my life? I have to have been working for 150% of my life? That seems a bit of a high bar. Presumably, they mean you must have worked for a minimum of one and a half years. And these rules about since your 21st birthday seem to imply workers under 21 will not get this paid leave. What's up with that? The CBO says that at least 30% of employed new mothers would not meet these conditions. Who knows how many of those who do meet them would actually end up getting it with so many confusing conditions involved. I get the feeling that the bureaucracy required to enforce these conditions is probably not worth whatever will be saved in fraud prevention, and certainly not worth the price that society will pay for so many people being deprived of paid leave. Speaking of conditions, the Jane Family Institute just released their findings on the effectiveness of different variations on the child tax credit and found that unconditionality is the most important and efficient aspect to reducing poverty. If that's not bullish news for UBI, I don't know what is. They compared three plans. First, continuing the improved CTC in its entirety. 
Second, the Build Back Better's current plan of only extending the change to monthly payments rather than end-of-year tax reduction and the removal of work requirements, both of which the JFA combines into the term full refundability, or what I would call unconditionality. And third, Manchin's plan of reintroducing the work requirements and tax credit conditions and just keeping the increased dollar amount of the credit. What the JFI found is that just the removal of those work requirement and tax liability conditions accounted for 20% of the 40% poverty reduction of the full package, whereas Manchin's plan to bring back the conditions and just keep the dollar increase only reduced poverty by 7%. They also found that unconditionality is more cost-effective. The unconditional plan costs only an additional $17 billion, while Manchin's amount increase costs $45 billion. That means that removing the conditions has both about three times the effect or one-third the price, or seven and a half times the cost-effectiveness. That should tell you just how much of a barrier conditions are. Throwing more money into the same flawed system has far less effect than removing the conditions first so the money goes to everyone in need. And that's only half of it. Once the conditions are removed, reducing poverty by 20%, Increasing the dollar amount of the credit after that takes it from the measly 7% poverty reduction that the money achieves in Manchin's conditional plan to an additional 20% poverty reduction. It makes that money three times more cost-effective. So yeah, conditions are the biggest problem with our welfare system, and they gotta go. Stick this study in your bookmarks for reference for short. In media news, Yang wrote a short essay on reforming from within versus from without, Congressman Swalwell interviewed Andrew on the Afterwords podcast about Forward Party and democracy. Yang was interviewed for the New York Post on what the author called, quote, bringing a glimmer of hope to a politically disaffected generation, end quote, good sign. He will be a guest on Voter Choice Arizona's meeting on Wednesday to talk about ranked choice voting. Heaton interviewed him on the Political Orphanage podcast to talk about reforming democracy, and Griffiths interviewed him on the Toppling the Duopoly podcast on the same topic. Newsweek's Navi Jamali interviewed him on ranked choice voting, the New York City primary, and his book, Shout out to the recent Forward podcast episode on Zillow infrastructure and AI, where Yang discussed how AI is actually better than humans in many respects in industries like therapy and art, which most people consider bastions of human superiority. Forward Party had a virtual call with a bunch of volunteers, which they unfortunately did not announce enough in advance for me to put it in the last episode. I also have not been able to find a recording of it. This is exactly the sort of thing that should be going on the Forward Party YouTube channel, which has been completely languishing since its inception. What we are not too late for is Yang's new giveaway. As before, he's giving out $1,000 to someone who follows Forward Party on Twitter, winner to be chosen late Monday. And finally, big shout out to the Fair Vote Action Board, which just added one Andrew Yang to their members. Not just that, they made him vice chair and people say he can't win an election. Fair Vote Action is a democracy reform organization with a focus on ranked choice voting. They also added a few other members, which you can check out in the description in the links. Looks like a great haul. And that'll do it for today's Yang Daily. Bookmark and share the gerrymandering and CTC study threads, as well as Yang's board appointment and giveaway. Flood Congress with calls, tweets, faxes, and letters using the easy volunteer contacts below. If you need help, consult the Income Movement Aid Database, the Mission Asset Fund, or United Way. And don't forget to Yang Daily.